Welcome to Crafting Solutions to Conflict, a podcast exploring how to deal effectively with conflict, actual and potential, good and bad. Engaging guests discuss a range of insights, and I cover tips and topics based on my 35-year fascination with conflict and my experience helping people with it. I'm your host, Jane Bettle, and my goal is to share a perspective on conflict that is both practical and positive. My guest today is Beth Fisher Yoshida. We talk about her new book, New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation. We discuss culture, stories, patterns, and habits, and practical tools to help you move away from what holds you back and reinforce what helps you. Hello, Beth, and thank you for joining me on the show today. Oh, hello. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, I am too. And I will tell you that as I went through your book, it was very challenging for me to find how I could narrow down the many things we might talk about. Okay. I consider that a wonderful problem when I'm about to talk with a guest. We will get to that. First, talk to us a little bit about how you came to be doing the work you're doing today. Sure. So uh, when I look back at the trajectory of my career, it looks like it was very well planned, but actually it wasn't. (laughs) I think my big MO was, well, that looks interesting. Let me try that. So uh, just really briefly, I ended up living in Japan. I I was an art major way back. And by living in Japan, I became interested in intercultural communication and conflict, Mm -hmm. especially being this brazen, independent New Yorker going to Japan. So then through that, I became interested in negotiation and conflict resolution. When I came back to the U.S., I started consulting and I also started working as a consultant at the United Nations and then back into Columbia University. And so then um, I just naturally started teaching. And even though I said I would never be a teacher, I started teaching and doing research and practice in the field because I really did start more strongly as a practitioner. And then when I did go back for my doctorate, I wanted to understand the theories that inform our practice. So now I'm really a little bit more balanced of a scholar practitioner, but a little heavier on the practice side. And so then more specifically about the book, I started to notice certain patterns with women in how they were negotiating or approaching negotiation. So I looked at the research that was existing, and then I thought, okay, there's this message and that message, but some of it was very contradictory. So I said, let me interview women to see what their strategies were, how they approached it, what their challenges were, because I really wanted to, again, put it into practice. How can I use this information? How can I use it in my workshops, in my coaching, and so on? And so that's what the impetus for the book was how I got to where I am. Well, great. And I love the idea that there's an evolution. It sounds like over time, your experiences have led you one direction or another, but it has an overall arc to it. It sounds like first tell us the name of the book, new story, new power, a woman's guide to negotiation. Well, I will say that what struck me in the big picture sense was the importance of stories. Talk to us about that idea of how important they are in our lives. 
Yes, I think historically people are just storytellers, right? We have the whole idea of lore and before we were writing, people would just have an oral history about things. And then I started to realize because I became interested in communication and a particular approach, the coordinated management of meaning, that as people were always trying to coordinate how we communicate with one another, and it could be using words, it could be physically, it could be nonverbal. And the stories come from somewhere, right? We all yes. have stories that we live by. And I thought, well, where do they come from? So I started to look more closely at the social stories. In today's world, we really have a very strong presence from social media. We have our families, our schools, and our religious institutions, communities. And their job is to socialize us into the world so we become constructively contributing citizens. And so you realize that some of those stories help us as adults, and some of them get in the way of us being who we want to be. And so really starting to deconstruct or take apart those stories to see their origin, where they came from, how they influence us, and then are they working or not? If they're working, let's build them and grow them to be even better. If they're not working for us, then let's either delete them if we can, or modify them to turn them into stories that help us. So Beth, I'm interested in how much you feel your experience in Japan, which in my mind sounds like a very different cultural place from New York City, mm -hmm. how much that has affected your thoughts regarding where do these stories come from? Yes, absolutely. So when I'm in New York, which I'm, I live just outside of New York, when I'm in New York, people are always like, well, what do you mean you have patience? What do you mean you slow down? <laughs> I said, no, really, really I have. So I think, you know, I'm so grateful that I had the years in Japan that I did because I felt like if I didn't leave New York when I did, I would be just a shark. You know, I'd just be so tough with no soft sides. I'm, maybe I'm exaggerating, but that's how I really feel about it. So what uh -huh. I learned from Japan, a couple of really important messages. One is really being able to sit with silence. You know, in New York, a typical conversation is if you have a three-second pause, then it's <laughs> Turn, they just jump right in. In Japan, I mean, I sat there physically just so uncomfortable trying to figure out, are they still talking or is it my turn? Because there'd be minutes, I'm not exaggerating, minutes that would go by and I just had to sit with it. And it was, it was painful, you know, but I learned to sit with silence, which helps me in my mediation, in my communication, waiting patiently for people to get to express what they want, not to jump in and finish people's sentences all the time, which, you know, we can do, especially if we think we know the direction they're going. And I also learned an important message about systems and collectives and that things are interrelated, the interconnectedness of things. I think I started to go on that journey a little bit when I was in university as an undergrad. But then when I went to Japan, it really solidified it even more about that whole universal. And it's almost like a domino thing. If you push in one place, it has a ripple effect all the way through and to appreciate that. So those are two strong messages that really uh, came to me. And then in terms of the story, the social story and the social pressure of a collective culture such as Japanese culture is so much stronger than the very strong individualistic um, story we tell about who we are in the U.S. Oh, yeah. Then how does that work when you're a team, right? And then, you know, organizations have really started embracing the whole idea about teams, working in teams, being a team, even if the culture of the organization is not really leaning towards that. And then performance is still measured individually. So it really is a lot of contradictory stories, too. And what I find interesting is 
this stark contrast. I would think that in some ways the U.S. and Japan are, and certainly New York and city in Japan are opposite ends of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But this idea of how we change, how we can be dynamic as a team, as a society, as an individual, talk to us a bit about this idea of neuroplasticity and self-directedness. Mm-hmm. Sure. So um, I think one of the great things that we have at our advantage today is we have MRI imaging and such like that. So we can see what's actually happening in the brain. My previous career way back in the day was I worked with kids who had learning and behavioral disorders. And so we didn't know what was going on in the brain in those mm-hmm. days. We yeah. had an idea, but we didn't have the imaging. So we have the expression, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. And I'm like, well, actually, you can because <laughs> our brains are a lot more malleable with that neuroplasticity than we think. So, of course, it's hard. Just it, It's hard to change or break any habit that we want to modify. But if there's determination and the know-how, so building the skills, then I think we can do it. In the case of negotiation, sometimes women especially – pair negotiation with discomfort and not wanting to assert or because they equate it with being aggressive and uncomfortable. So I would suggest, well, how about repairing that when you hear the word negotiation and even if you are intimidated by it, just showing up, just putting in the effort, let's wire that together. So it doesn't matter as much if you get the outcome you want. The fact that you were even there, you prepared and you engaged, that's something to reward. I think, too, there's an idea there of I can control what I can control. I can't always control the outcome of something. That's beyond me. But I can do my best. And I think also the dynamic aspect of, well, that time I showed up and I was ready and I did well and I learned. There will be other opportunities to build on what I have done so far. Yes, yes. And I always encourage people, don't go out and negotiate with the most challenging person on the most challenging issue. Just start small, start like really simple and win and feel good about it. And then you build your confidence that way. I'm having an image of a ski slope. You don't start on a double black diamonds. You start on a bunny slope and you get better. (laughs) You don't get hurt. You get better over time. I, I mean, you that. may end up on that double black diamond by accident, <laughs> but you know, which I've done, but yes. <laughs> that is fascinating. One thing that I noticed in the book and I thought was so important is both the stories and quite related to that, this idea of patterns, habits and patterns. Tell us more about what you found in research on that, what you already knew and what you learned in talking with women. Yeah. So I think patterns are just so amazing. And a lot of times, unless we really intentionally focus on it, we don't even realize that we're operating in a pattern. And I always like kid around sometimes, you know, you you know, you don't want to say something because it's not going to be productive (laughs) because you've said it before and it doesn't work. And yet you don't have an alternative. And in the moment, because that pattern is so strong, you say it. And as you're saying, you're going, no, don't go there. And you go there, you know, and then you have to retract it. So the patterns are that if person A says something, then person B has a response, and then person A goes back to the patterned response, and then B, and then you end up in these cycles that never get anywhere, and that's why we have sometimes such intractable conflicts with one another. And so 
identifying what those patterns are and seeing where are the points of intervention, where can you go in, where are the leverage points you can go in and just shift the pattern a little bit. And sometimes it doesn't even take that much, right? It's a little bit of a shift and then it's a whole new pattern that you've created. And hopefully it's a pattern that you want because it brings you the outcomes and the kinds of relationships that you want. Is this something where truly the first step is so very important, just the recognition I'm doing this Mm -hmm. and I need to look more carefully at what I'm doing? Absolutely. And so that's what I say is core is really developing self-awareness. And it's not something you can check off a list and say, okay, I've done that. I think it's life work because you're never in the same situation with the same people on the same issues more than once. It's a spiral. I think of it when I think of it like a metaphor, it's a spiral there because you keep like, you may revisit something that looks similar, but it's not exactly the same. And so, yes, you can just change the patterns, create a spiral and realize through self-awareness work, which takes effort that um, you can be the person you want to be, but it takes effort. And I would think it's one of those things where it's a skill most of us have not practiced, but once we start to do it, it must get easier in this relationship, in this encounter, and then in another one. I think the habit of doing it make it easier, but maybe, and I don't know, yes, it could, but also I'm thinking once you get better at it, maybe then you tackle the more challenging Mm -hmm. aspects. So maybe, I don't know, it depends on what the lesson is that you need to learn at that time, right? That it it presents itself to you and then you sort of explore it and it may be uncomfortable, but the outcome I think will be better. Well, that certainly makes sense. There are a number of really terrific things that you've talked about in the book and some are familiar to me from the past, but not every single one. And I would love to hear more about this idea of unwanted repetitive patterns. Right. Well, that's the pattern, right? unwanted repetitive ones are those cycles that you go through that are not productive. They're destructive and they're not constructive at all. And so how do you get out of that? And that's the pattern that you want to break because the, there are good patterns, good habits that we have, but that pattern. So you're thinking, okay, maybe there's a word that's a trigger word for the other person. So maybe I shouldn't use that word because I'm going to elicit a response that I don't want. I'm going to elicit a response that's not helpful. Well, then I shouldn't say that word, but I have to have something to substitute for it. Right. So it goes back into that self-awareness and then other awareness, because it's the relationship that we're trying to manage. So the unwanted repetitive pattern is in interaction with somebody else. So this idea of the relationships is, of course, so important. One thing that you mentioned, which I found quite interesting and not something that everyone highlights, is I don't know if it even necessarily is conscious, but when we have an important relationship, we can be a little fearful about taking risks to change anything. This is what I'm familiar with. This is easy for my brain to do because that's the pattern and that's the pathway. I've done it again and again. What am I risking If we try to make a change, talk to us a little more about that concept. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. So one is uh, some research has been done where it shows that when we negotiate in intimate relationships, we tend to lose more because we don't want to hurt the other person. And so we sort of give in or cave in a little bit more. So we don't get the outcomes we want in terms of substantial outcomes. Of course, we're developing the relationship. But the thing is, if you change something 
then the risk is that you're also forcing a kind of change on the other person because you're not responding the same way. You're not in it in the same way that you were. So it's kind of like the difference between maybe an individual therapy and family therapy. You know, individuals are going to therapy and they want to change, but then they go back home and nobody else in the family is is buying into that change. Yes, they want you to change, but they don't want to change, right? right. <laughs> so your change is also dependent on their change and they're shifting how they are to you. But you get a lot of pushback sometimes because that's not part of the bargain. They didn't want that part, right? So that's the same thing in any intimate relationship or any important relationship. It could be a work relationship, a family and personal relationship. Because when you change, you're shifting how you are in relation to that other party, which is causing a shift in them. And so they need to be on board for that. And relates to the idea you mentioned about systems. Mm -hmm. Some change in that system is going to cause everything to have to reorient a little bit or dig in even deeper because that's the way we've always done things. We're going to stick with it that way, something like that. It is remarkable to hear that one. What did you find in the research and your own experience and the conversations that you had that was a distinguishing point between the men and the women beyond that overall idea about negotiation maybe feels negative and makes me anxious? One of the things that's so interesting is that and it's not only in my own research, but it's also research that's out there, is that women are, and this is, of course, generalizations, but women are known as being more collective-oriented, more relational than men. And this is how we've been socialized as nurturers and caretakers and so on. So that's a strength you would think about, right? So it's a strength, and when I go into a negotiation, I'm going in and building relationship, and this is what I'm good at. However... If that becomes too overt that that's what you're doing, there's sometimes a backlash against that. And I thought, oh, my God, that is so strange, right? You want to use your strengths. So I would say, all right, well, then just don't make it blatant. Just do it, but do it as part of naturally who you are in connection and communication with the other party, but don't necessarily draw attention to it, right? And I think that, you know, it's It's a little bit too simplistic sometimes if we just say, well, women do this and men do that, because there are, I I think of things on a continuum and there are variations along that continuum. And it doesn't mean that you show up exactly the same in all scenarios. So I might be a little bit more detail oriented, which is not my strength, but I have to be detail oriented in certain situations because others around me are not. So I take on that role or I have to be sort of more of a stimulator in a conversation because other people are quiet. And sometimes we have a lot of those people. So I I sit back and then I'm quieter. So we need to understand those variations too. And sometimes there might be somebody, a man who is very relational and very communicative and very um, group oriented. So we have to sort of allow for that to happen as well. No one gender owns any one space in a negotiation, I think. And I think we get offended when someone else, because I personally never make mistakes, when someone else says all fill in the blank, people are fill in the blank. Right. Not true of gender, not true of race, not true of anything else. It really takes away the sense of the individuality. And I think also, and this is one of the things I love about this idea of dynamics and change, we can change. Mm-hmm. I personally can change and the person I'm in conflict can change. We can find a way to have these interactions more productively, more efficiently, if you will, and have better outcomes for both of us. One thing that I found was 
interesting again about the stories is the idea of the stories that are within a, a relationship that are being told, spoken out loud, the ones that are not being told, the ones that are not really being understood. And I love your case studies that spell these out and help help us understand how all these things could be applied. But I'm interested in this idea of the various ways the stories appear and don't appear. Tell us a little bit about how you chose the case studies and how you applied that idea. Yeah. So uh, the stories all come from different interviews that I've had, and they're a little bit of an aggregation of them. So it's not one pure story, but they come from the research. And so these are real kinds of stories. I mean, in the organization, how many times do does somebody come in from outside, you know, when we're trying to be, move up in the organization or siblings? I mean, when siblings yeah. have to come together and make a decision, but the story of who they are as siblings is from when they were eight years old or 10 right, years old right. instead of adults, you know, and then in um, intimate relationships, you know, especially when you have people who both have careers and careers take you to different places. How do you negotiate that? How do you figure out whose career can maybe be modified and all that, or does it have to be right? So the whole idea about untold stories is fascinating because you wonder, well, okay, why are they not being told? Yes. Is it that they're being told, but the other person's not hearing it? Is it that they're not being told because the timing and sense of safety is not right? Is it that they're not being told because they're not even apparent to the person who's holding that story? So there's lots of stuff. And I know one thing is, I ask myself the question a lot of times, what's really going on here? Because sometimes I'm noticing resistance or some reluctance to do something or just a, an or an emotional reaction that seems a little bit over the top to me. Yes. And I'm wondering what else is going on? Here? <laughs> yes. Is something that I'm not hearing. And is it me? Is it that the person is trying to communicate it and I'm not getting it or what? So that's a whole big area of exploration about self, right? Is it is it me? Like, am I not hearing? Or also the other person and of course, that relational dynamic. So interesting. And the dynamic part, things can change. And bringing it to the surface, thinking it both in terms of one-on-one conversation and certainly in my work over the years as a mediator, there are times when people will say things that, boy, I guess that makes sense to them. It doesn't make any sense to me. And Mm -hmm. that's because I don't have the whole story. You've decided to share a piece of the story. And I'm not there to force you to say things you don't want to say. So if you folks agree that that makes sense to you and you've thought through the consequences, okay, then you have that self-determination. But this idea of whether as an individual, I'm not even aware of what I am choosing to share with this person who is so important to me. These were examples, case studies, where these are relationships that matter a great deal. Why am I not sharing that story? And also, what's the story that's unknown? Who knows how this is going to roll out? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's so interesting. So I think, you know, there's also the whole idea about some sort of trauma. And sometimes we can't share parts of our stories because we've just blocked it out of our own consciousness as well. And I think, um, yes, there is an intentionality in sharing. And I also think there's also a blind spot that we have that we just don't recognize it, or we can't acknowledge it, or maybe we're afraid yes. of the reaction we're going to get yeah. and judgment that may come along with it. 
There are also the untellable stories. Like what are the taboo stories that you don't go there? You just don't yeah. go there. Yeah. It's the family secret or whatever it is, or it's some kind of something that happens in an organization, like about a person or something. You just don't talk about it. Right. Yes. But it's there and it never gets resolved. And it's always under, there's an undercurrent there. And so it's always felt, but can't be spoken about. Absolutely. And the idea that somehow it's doing no damage because it's undercover, it seems mm -hmm. pretty silly. I don't think that's going to be true in almost any right. circumstance. Beth, I appreciate the various practical ideas that you have offered to us and set them out in a way that, well, I could apply that one and see if that works for me. And if I don't feel super comfortable, it didn't feel all that effective, I could try one of these other approaches that would help me be in a better place to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I appreciate you saying that because my goal, one of my goals was to make this as practical as possible. So yes, you know, the beginning does start out with some underlying concepts and so on, but I wanted to introduce the variety of tools that you talked about and frameworks, because I think that each one gives something to the story, right? Each one elicits some kind of information and, uh, Sometimes we may feel more comfortable with one than the other and we may grow into another one. You know, it's like uh, sometimes we just have a favorite that we just want to use all the time. So, um, yes, in the preparation process and post-negotiation phases, there are specific tools that can be used to better prepare you and elicit information. Because sometimes we think, oh, yeah, yeah I, I know this. I know this. And I'm uh. like, well, reading it is not a strategy. You really have to prepare. And then during the process, there are so many ways to address the twists and turns that happen in the core negotiation. And po post-negotiation is so incredibly important because you've worked so hard preparing. And during the negotiation, dropping the ball or not yeah. following up on something or clarifying an understanding really is kind of wasteful because you put so much energy and effort into it. So all of those phases are there. And then in the case studies you referenced earlier, I pull on some of those models or tools to use to demonstrate how they can be used in an actual situation. Well, I think it's great. And I love the idea of someone being able, a woman in particular, being able to go into the preparation stage, the actual negotiation stage, and the post stage with a sense of more confidence, because mm -hmm. I am more competent, I know how to do this, I will do better because I feel better. I don't walk in the door, oh no. As you said at the very beginning of our conversation, the idea of, oh no, this is just a dreadful thing. Everything I feel about negotiation is negative. Moving past that in itself would be a, a huge plus, I think. Yeah, and the reality is that there probably are many times that we negotiate that we don't label it negotiation, but we're doing it and we're doing True. it well, just not acknowledging it or recognizing it. And maybe those are the ones that are going really, really well because they weren't stressful, which is right. a, a good thing. So Beth, I'd ask you to tell folks where they can find out about the book, learn more about your work, reach you, and uh, obviously put that good information in the show notes. Sure. So the book, New Story, New Power, A Woman's Guide to Negotiation is available on Amazon and other booksellers. And I can be reached through my website, BethFisherYoshida, one word, dot com. And I also am at Columbia University in the city of New York. So I can be reached through there as well. I'm not hard to find. <laughs> if you really want to find me, I'm not hard to find. Well, that's terrific. That's as it should be, I think. Thank you for giving us a taste of some of the tools that you've set out in the book. 
Oh, thank you, Jane. It's been a great conversation. I can just talk for hours about all this. (laughs) Terrific. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy the Crafting Solutions to Conflict podcast, please tell a friend, share it, leave a rating or review. When you spread the word, more people have a chance to enjoy the show. You can also sign up for new weekly episodes on your favorite app. Whatever setting works best for you and is free. You don't need to pay to listen. You can also find the show at CraftingSolutionsToConflict.com. Comments or ideas? Let me know. Until next time, I'm Jane Vettel.